Hey everybody, welcome back, or welcome if it's your first time, to the Lasting Learning Podcast. In this podcast, we traditionally just get to hear my ramblings and hear me talking about whatever is bothering me or frustrating me right now, uh, specifically around the, the world of education and how we can break the status quo and really help our students learn skills that will last a lifetime. Over the next 13 weeks, though, I'm deciding to do things a little bit differently. Many of you know that two years ago, I was lucky enough to publish a book titled It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. The focus is really around that concept of of teaching kids skills that will endure. You know, if a student can or a child can learn how to ride a bike when they're four and five years old and we're told that they will never, ever forget that skill, they can hop on 50 years later and still be able to ride, surely we as educators should be able to apply the same principles in our classroom. We should be able to teach kids skills that last beyond a single moment in time. We should be able to teach a kid a skill on a Monday and expect that they'll remember that same skill, that same topic, that same content weeks, months, and years down the road. It shouldn't be just teaching to a test and then letting the kids forget about it. Well, um, this summer, to help assist teachers with their professional learning, I have decided that I'm going to be sharing this book with you for free. I'm going to be sharing it with you via this podcast. In essence, I'm creating my own free audio version of the book. Each week for the next 13 weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you a chapter of the book. If you choose to to listen to this and share it with peers and teaching colleagues and have some debate or maybe even a little book study about it, feel free. Go ahead. This podcast is free and available to anybody. If you decide that you want to have some paper copies, some real um, or even a Kindle copy, feel free to go online to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, my website and order one that you can highlight and write all over it or or share it with others. But for those of you that just prefer to to listen to podcasts and listen to uh, audiobooks in your car or while you're sitting on the back deck this summer, feel free. I'm not doing this to try to make money from anybody. I'm doing it to try to change the status quo. So I hope that you'll join me all summer long as we enjoy or learn from or discuss It's Like Riding a Bike. Welcome back to yet another week in a summer learning series. This is the fifth installment as we read through the book, It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. Today we're going to be looking at chapter four. Step four, pick them up when they fall. As I've said every week, I encourage you, if you are just joining us, to go back and check out other editions, um, other episodes, so you can get caught up to speed. I encourage you to go back and actually start with the introduction. The introduction in a lot of books um, is a place we just breeze right over, but it really sets the stage for this this conversation. Um, It's also the most debated, discussed, and... um, argued about part of the book. So um, go back and, and check out those those earlier episodes. As, uh, as you will find out in this progression, each chapter of this book represents a different step 
in this process. This is not a, a step-by-step guide. You don't have to start with step one and end on step seven, um, but it does provide a little bit more context. So again, I encourage you, go back, check out the other episodes, um, check out other episodes of the podcast that have nothing to do with this book, just to hear some of my own thoughts and some of my own ramblings. I encourage you to go back and, and check things out. Um, as we go through this, I encourage you to share this with your friends, share this with your peers, share this with your your uh, your colleagues at work. Start the debate, start the conversations, whether you agree, whether you disagree with the items that you hear. Um, I just encourage you, keep thinking there are no taboo topics in education. Our kids deserve us arguing and debating and wrestling with everything we do. They deserve the absolute best from us. They, they deserve that uh, for their educators, their um, mentors, their guides, their teachers, their administrators to really know why they're doing everything they're doing. So whether you agree or disagree with the items that you hear today, just know that your commitment to providing the best for your kids requires you to know why you do what you do. And it can't just be because it's what you've always done. So we're going to begin today again, like I said, with chapter four, pick them up when they fall. As we discuss, it's like riding a bike how to make learning last a lifetime. Here we go, chapter four. All bike riders, even experienced riders, will take tumbles. We can have help with pushes to get us going and we can learn to balance ourselves, but we will all, at some time, fall. It's guaranteed. We fall down when learning to ride. We fall down when we do stunts and tricks. We fall down when we're making millions of dollars and creating YouTube videos or competing in the X Games. But those who get better don't stay down for long. They always get back up. As kids experiment with new things, they will experience hardships. They will fall. They will get hurt. They will make mistakes. As much as we try to prevent it, it'll happen. We don't help them fall, but it's our responsibility to help them get up. We reach out loving hands, dry their tears, and celebrate how far they've come. We inspire. We motivate. We push. We teach. We don't label. We don't limit. When my children fall, I don't stand over them and tell them that they failed. I don't label them as, quote-unquote, not a bike rider or someone who should stick to walking. I help them up. I nurture the bruised knees and bruised egos, and I encourage them to try again. Learning is all about do-overs. Doing anything right the first time is not a sign of learning, but a sign of learn-ed. We need to allow for mistakes. We must allow for slips and falls and not allow them to be judgments or inhibitors of future success. When my daughter falls off her bike on the first day she's trying, or the 10th day she's trying, it has no bearing on whether or not she'll be a bike rider three weeks later. I don't tell her that she's only partly a bike rider because she'd fallen off earlier. The fact that she can ride today is all that matters. Falling happens, but soon after, so does success. Our classrooms are places of learning. As such, Our students are going through an often messy process towards acquiring skills. They will fall down as they go. The question is, what do we do about it? Do we label them as failures when they fall? Do we give condemning progress updates? Or do we uplift, inspire, and encourage perseverance? How does your feedback look in class? In most classrooms, the primary mechanism by which we communicate progress to students is through grading. The standards-based grading movement is one that has caught a lot of attention in recent years. It centers on the idea of identifying concrete, specific standards of learning and ensuring that students' grades reflect the evidence that has been observed in relation to student mastery of that standard. 
most of the teachers I've worked with across the country are able to understand the need for concrete, descriptive feedback. But they struggle with how that feedback manifests itself in a child in the learning process. Learning is very rarely binary. There is no light bulb that turns on in our minds when we all of a sudden learn something new. Learning has a slide dimmer that gradually increases the amount of light we see as our neurons make new connections. Being a bike rider is not a yes you are or no you're not proposition either. How would one differentiate standards-based feedback based on whether a child can ride with one hand on the handlebars or two? Is a child relying on training wheels more proficient than a child with a parent holding onto the seat? Is a child riding a unicycle more advanced than an adult riding a motorcycle? In our classrooms, we often have a wide range of skills and abilities. We know all of our students are at different places in their learning progression and will make mistakes as they learn. Do we allow for that? Do we expect every child to show the same skills in the same way at the same time without error? If we're in the learning business, it's time we begin to get in the business of embracing mistakes. Let's start this discussion with a practical yet power with a few practical yet powerful strategies. In your classroom, when students make mistakes, do they get the opportunity to redo whatever task, assignment, or activity was expected for full credit? Do you collect every assignment students submit, those with multiple mistakes as well as those with few or no mistakes, provide grades, and then calculate an average score based on the mean? If so, why? When I see B's on my children's report cards, do I know if they struggled early in the process or later? Do I know what they struggled with or excelled in? Do I know if they understood the content but struggled with turning in assignments on time or at all? We use grades to communicate with our parents and our students. But as, I'm told, as I am told often, if people do not understand what I'm saying, I'm not communicating very well. It's on me to figure out a better way to get my point across. The same is true in your classroom. If we are to encourage risk-taking, we cannot penalize failure. We cannot include initial struggles in a final grade if progress was eventually made. Using the running metaphor that I've used earlier, if I trip on a curb running tomorrow morning and spend 10 minutes nursing my injury, but then in three weeks run a race and come in third place, my medal will not be stripped from me because of my mistake in practice. Is the same thing true in your classroom? Students must learn that mistakes are not opportunities for condemnation. Mistakes will not have a negative impact on them, but will actually allow them to succeed in the future. If that's the case, we have to stop telling students that they have only one chance to get it right, that they cannot try again. We have to stop averaging student work by giving the same weight to first attempts as we do to final attempts. Our job as educators is to provide enduring knowledge today and prepare students for success in the future. I've heard the argument that the real world does not allow for redos or retakes, so as teachers, we shouldn't. Actually, adults get to redo failed marriages by marrying again. Adults can leave jail after serving time and re-enter the workforce in civilized society. All high-stakes standardized tests, the ACT, the SAT, the GRE, allow for multiple attempts, retakes, and redos. Allowing for do-overs is what we do our entire life. It is often only in our classrooms that we discourage this, and usually our rationale has nothing to do with learning. We discourage it for our convenience or due to our arrogance or misguided beliefs that we're teaching some sort of social lesson that doesn't need to be taught. We allow our kids to hop back on their bikes once they fall down. We allow toddlers to get back on their feet after stumbling when learning to walk. Why do we feel the need in our classrooms to limit opportunities for success and hold initial failures and struggles against a child? Struggles and failures are opportunities for feedback and improvement. They cannot 
and should not be opportunities for labels or indictments. A few years ago, I heard something that stuck with me. Imagine you're teaching three people how to pack parachutes, and you test them weekly during your six-week course. Here are the grades that you give each of them during the week. Student A, a 95, 75, 82, 45, 35, and a 40. Student B, each week for six weeks, scores a 62. Student C, scores a 40, a 35, a 45, an 82, a 75, and then a 95. Which of these three students do you want packing your parachute? If you average all the grades, you get a score of 62 for each student, a D in most of your classrooms today. But does that reflect what happened during the six weeks? Student C is the student most would say they want packing their chute, and that makes complete sense if you're planning on jumping from a plane at the end of the six-week course. But what if they were faced with jumping at the end of week one? Would their answers change? Based on these scores, we could argue that student C has shown the most growth and has finally demonstrated he has learned this critical skill. His early struggles shouldn't be used against him. Student B's substandard grades never changed. Student A may have known this skill all along and just got tired of the weekly performance checks. The bottom line is, your grades should not be an average of struggles and successes. It should reflect what is current and accurate. That will give you the clearest story and the best feedback. Here's a challenge for your classroom. If you must give cumulative grades, count the most recent evidence a student gives you and simply provide feedback on prior attempts. Allow and encourage students to redo and improve initial attempts. We do it often in writing classes with rough drafts and final drafts. We need to encourage the same thing in all classes. When students make mistakes, remind them of the power of yet. They will, they will ultimately learn it if they persist. Only by falling do we learn to get back up. Still not convinced that retakes and redos are a natural part of adult life? Well, when I wrote this, I was in my 17th year as a public school educator. I've been a middle school teacher, director of gifted programming, a coach, a dean, and assistant principal, principal. I've worked in four districts in two states. I've traveled to almost every state in America presenting and collaborating and have met some amazing people. I've been blessed by my opportunities, yet I still have a drive for more, a drive that sometimes make me do some pretty stupid things. In 2003, I made some pretty costly mistakes. That year, I graduated with a master's in educational leadership. That was only a couple years after I started my career as a teacher, and I was already certified a leader in education. After three years, I knew I had all the answers, and I was ready to, to be the next great leader in the world of public education. I was ready to jump in, get a title as administrator, and start guiding my teachers to change everything they were doing and start copying my way of teaching. They would all see great success. After all, we all know leadership is just a title, and once you get that title, people immediately respect you and want to do everything you say. Again, that's sarcasm. In 2003, I went on 14 job interviews, seeking either an assistant principal or a school principal position, being sure somebody would hire a young administrator who obviously knew it all. After visiting 14 schools and meeting with 14 committees, I received zero job offers. What? I was sure I was the next best thing to happen in schools. I knew it. After all, I'd been a successful student. I'd worked as a teacher for three years, basically copying all the techniques of the best teachers I'd had over the years. And my students were getting great grades assigned by me. I considered my total lack of job offers a major injustice and a disservice to the students those 14 districts were paid to educate. Or so I thought. 
I was used to standing in front of 150 kids every day who expected me to have the answers to everything. I was paid to have the most knowledge in the room. I was definitely smarter than all my 12-year-olds. I proved it every day by shutting down all of their, quote-unquote, disrespect for questioning my sound logic and debating my reasoning. These 12-year-olds had no right to question my authority and my intelligence by asking for clarity or seeking new ways of answering old problems. I was a master teacher who had no patience with preteens who questioned why the world worked as it did. If they just listened to what I was telling them, they would learn all they needed to know. Well, in the fall of 2003, after facing a summer of rejections, I decided to prove to everyone just how smart I was. With so many doors to school administration being slammed shut in front of me, I decided to try my hand at law school and really put my intelligence to the test. After all, everyone knows that doctors and lawyers are the smartest people around, and I was so much more than just a teacher. So why not join the ranks of the elites? The fall of 2003 was one of the most humbling seasons of my life. Law school was like no school I'd ever been in before. Law school required me to think and answer questions that had no answers. My professors spent very little time giving me statistics and data. They spent the bulk of their time asking me questions. I considered the Socratic method torture. I was good at playing school, but law school was a struggle. I had passed my GRE and LSAT exams with ease, but I was having difficulty in an environment which I was being asked to think for myself. I was expected to read cases, legislation, and interpretations and evaluate texts and ideas through my own lens looking for errors, omissions, lapses in judgment, or causes for celebration. My professors were not doing school as I had always experienced it and had always proven myself successful at. They were doing all they could to question my thinking and challenge me to reflect and develop a sense of analysis and evaluation that I had never before had to the degree that they were demanding. Looking back on it now, I'm thankful that I was not given a leadership position prior to my experience in law school. I probably would have worked tirelessly to simply create schools similar to those that I'd been in. Schools that worked well for kids who knew how to play school. Schools that were good at creating future teachers, but struggling to live up to their mission of creating lifelong learners. Thirteen years later, I now see the proverbial light that is not a focused laser, but one that contains a whole spectrum of colors. My professional goal is to help educators question what they do and why they do it. My goal is not to judge or condemn, but to help them focus on their intentionality. In your classroom, are you working to create thinkers or students who can repeat every word you say in every text you ask them to read? Are you trying to help kids create kids who can describe the way the world was or kids who can help create the world to be? In a world in which 300,000 books are published every year, we need to educate a population that does not just thrive on the knowledge available in texts. We cannot have our students just pick up books, sit in our classrooms, listening to us, and expect them to know all they need to know to be successful in the world they'll inherit. We need to teach them how to learn in a variety of ways and contexts for a variety of reasons. We need to teach our students how to process information from social media, their peers, politicians, and digital media, as well as from print media. We need to teach our students how to go beyond recall, remembering and understanding information to get them to a point that they're analyzing, evaluating, and creating information. We teachers have to learn to do exactly that first. We need to guide the process to model it, or at least to enable it. And that's what this book is all about. True learning. Lasting learning. It's not about copying the thoughts of others. It's about feeling safe enough to strike out on our own and create something new, powerful, and original. Let's get our kids comfortable enough to take risks, to fail miserably, and to get back up and try again. That concludes chapter four. Hope you'll come back next week as we look at chapter five, 
Step 5. Cheer them on.